Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. As we begin our time together this morning, please join me as I read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Luke is writing, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. There was a major theme that ran through Jesus' ministry. It was a major theme of the Gospel of Luke, perhaps the major theme. And it's a major theme of the book of Acts as well. So what is this theme? The kingdom of God. If we've been paying attention, this is the theme of the entire Bible. God, the sovereign king of the universe, had entrusted the earth, his kingdom, to humanity, his image bearers that they might steward it well for him and reflect God's glory upon it. Yet three chapters into Genesis, and humanity has already failed in this task. They've rebelled against the king, and in essence created a new kingdom, the kingdom of this world, which is under the dominion of Satan. We see this multiple times throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Let me read two passages for you just so you can get a glimpse of this. 2 Corinthians 4.4 puts it this way. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so as Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he refers to Satan as the God of this age and demonstrates his power over the unbelievers, holding them captive so that they might not understand. We see in Ephesians 6.12, Paul's writing again, this time to the church at Ephesus. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Catch the way Paul is describing these powers. He says, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world. Satan and his minions, if you will, have power, they have authority, they have rule over this dark world created by the rebellion of God's people against his kingship and his kingdom. There are plenty of other examples in the New Testament, but again, this is not a sermon about Satan. It's about Jesus and his work. But what we see clearly throughout the Bible is the fallen kingdom and God working his salvific plan throughout history to bring the renewal, the restoration, the return of the kingdom of God. I believe that most Christians, when they think about the kingdom of God, envision a spiritual kingdom. After all, part of the fall of the kingdom in Genesis 3 included humanity's separation from God, humanity's propensity toward evil, humanity's condemnation, Humanity's need for salvation. And when we think about Jesus' death and resurrection, we think primarily about the salvation of souls. Again, something spiritual. For instance, we see in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Or perhaps the most famous passage that refers to this, John 3.16-18. through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, these tend to be spiritual in nature, the emphasis of these and other passages related to our salvation. And so when we think of the kingdom of God, it's very easy to think only of the spiritual aspects of it. Perhaps we would define the kingdom of God as that that body of people who've been redeemed by Jesus' death and resurrection, who will spend eternity with him in heaven. But here's the part that many Christians forget. Our ultimate destiny is not to live as bodiless souls floating around in the heavenlies. Our ultimate destiny is to live upon the new earth after the resurrection, once again embodied souls forever. The kingdom of God began as a physical and spiritual kingdom, and it will return as a physical and spiritual kingdom. Throughout the history of God's engagement with humanity, which we read about in the Old Testament, God has put significant pieces in their place for the coming kingdom of God. Let me tell you something about me. I'm not a chess player. By that, I mean that I'm no good at chess. In fact, I taught my boys how to play, and then within like the third game, they're already beating me at it. I'm not a good chess player. However, I am aware that good chess players think several moves ahead. They anticipate the moves of their opponents. Perhaps they even make a move in order to force their opponent's hand, ultimately arriving at their intended goal, checkmate. In fact, a win at chess is the culmination of every move to that point. And the same is true of the ultimate coming of the kingdom of God. 
it will be the culmination of God's work throughout the entirety of history. Some of those moves that God has made have included calling the patriarch Abraham out from among his people, using him to father a nation, promising to that nation the land of Israel, where God would name Jerusalem his holy city, placing his temple there, his footstool, inextricably connected to his throne in heaven, promising to King David that he will have a descendant who reigns forever and ever, and at the appointed time, sending Jesus, the Messiah, to the earth to do what needed to be done to bring the kingdom of God to bear. Jesus died and rose again so that humanity can be rescued from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. And that's the spiritual component. And at the proper time, Jesus will come again to bring the physical kingdom of God. Well, that was a long prologue to our text today. And my hope is that you'll see in just a few moments why it's utterly important to understand both of these aspects, the spiritual and the physical aspects of the kingdom of God. So I hope you're still in your text with me, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Again, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Remember that throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, there were many important things that he taught about. He spoke about the poor, for instance. He spoke about the future. He taught about how his followers should live. He spoke about his Father in heaven. He taught about the Spirit. He taught about the church. He taught about the evil one. But Luke highlights one thing that Jesus taught about during this 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. The most important thing, the kingdom of God. Going on in our text in verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. If Luke highlighted the fact that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, do you think his instruction regarding the Holy Spirit is divorced from that topic? Do you think perhaps Jesus changed the subject? That Luke was now going on to some other emphasis of Jesus? I don't believe so. The Holy Spirit is essential to the work of God in building his kingdom. And while I'm sure that the Holy Spirit has a significant role in the coming of the physical kingdom of God, yet to come, the New Testament focuses heavily, perhaps exclusively, on the Spirit's role in building the spiritual kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates believers in Jesus, who causes them to be born again. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells believers, who sanctifies believers, setting them apart from sin and setting them apart unto God. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers believers for ministry and for mission. And it's the Holy Spirit who continues to work in the world 
preparing it for the gospel, even as he works through the church as it testifies about Jesus. Now, last week I mentioned that Acts is the continuing story of Jesus, the continuing work of God as he builds his kingdom through his people. And the Holy Spirit is essential to that mission. And we will see him play a large role throughout our study of Acts. Going on in verse 6, it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, I mentioned earlier that, the mo- that most Christians think of the kingdom of God in terms of the spiritual. Most Christians focus in on just those aspects that have to do with our salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. By contrast, the Jews of Jesus' day, including his disciples, focused almost exclusively on the physical aspects of the kingdom of God. So for Christians today, we focus primarily on the spiritual because we've never been part of a physical kingdom that was dedicated to God. In fact, even our warmest sentiments about the United States and its founders fall short of a theocratic kingdom of God on the earth. After all, the church has transcended every continent and countless nations in its 2,000-year history. We live as foreigners and strangers in the various lands in which we live, awaiting the return of Christ. Meanwhile, we proclaim the gospel, whereby people move from death to life and are reconciled to God. It's no wonder we tend to think of the kingdom in terms of the spiritual. That's where we tend to focus when we're looking at these things that we've been taught. This has been our experience. By contrast, for much of their history, the Jews were part of a theocratic kingdom on the earth, a kingdom established by and for God. Even in those periods of time when they were exiled from the land of Israel, they bore God's promise of a physical kingdom restoration. The land had been promised to them for all times by a God who keeps his promises. And the Old Testament prophetic promises of the future were tied to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, to some version of the temple where God would reign on the earth forever. It's easy for us, perhaps, to read passages and acts Uh, or to read this passage in Acts particularly, and to think, boy, those disciples just didn't get it. But I don't think that's fair to them. In fact, they were absolutely right to expect that Jesus would reign as king on the earth from David's throne in Jerusalem. This just wasn't the time for that yet. The spiritual kingdom of God must first be built. And so we see that Jesus' silence affirms their belief in the physical kingdom. What do I mean by that? Jesus didn't say, no, 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 no. The kingdom will not be restored to Israel. We're doing something different now. That's not what Jesus said. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, it will happen, but you don't need to know when. There are other things that you have to do now. And so Jesus continues by saying this in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The physical kingdom of God will come at the proper time when Jesus returns. But now 
Jesus has called his disciples to build the spiritual kingdom of God in preparation for the arrival of the physical kingdom of God. But as I emphasized last week, this is not something that they or us were called to go do for God, as though we had the ability to do it on our own. Instead, Jesus had to first empower his people for the task he had called them to. And again, it's the Holy Spirit who's the source of that empowering. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then, and only then, will you be my witnesses. And where? Everywhere. Remember, they were starting in Jerusalem. In verse 4, Jesus commanded them to stay in Jerusalem, where they will receive the Holy Spirit. And so the first place that they were called to be Jesus' witnesses was right there in Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish people the same place where Jesus was condemned by both the Jews and the Romans just a short time ago, the place where Jesus will return one day as reigning king. But they were not to just stay there in Jerusalem. They were to start there, but not to stay there. They were not to set up shop. They were not to settle down to remain as a Jewish movement in the heart of the land of Israel. Instead, they were called to also be witnesses in the surrounding area, throughout Judea, and even to a people group that they have hated, who they have been in conflict with for centuries, the Samaritans in Samaria. And they were even called to regions beyond, to the very ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, so that the spiritual kingdom of God would have citizens of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that the whole world would have an opportunity to stand ready when the physical kingdom of God would one day arrive. And we conclude our passage with verses 9 through 11. He says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus came 2,000 years ago so that a way might be made for human beings to be spiritually saved from the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God. The church, Jesus' people, have been tasked with being his witnesses in the world so that the Holy Spirit might work through them to rescue other people from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. But again, the kingdom of God is not merely a spiritual kingdom. It will come as a physical kingdom with a physical king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the disciples had it right. They expected the Messiah, the king, to defeat his enemies and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. This is the promise of countless Old Testament prophecies. This is the resounding promise of the New Testament as well. And this Jesus who went up into heaven will return as that king. And friends, we'd better be ready. We'd better be living our lives dedicated to his return. That is what he calls his people to. If you're a Christian, you don't have an option. This is your calling. And together we either stand in obedience to the king or we stand in disobedience to the king. So here are just a few things that we have to bear in mind. This is the first one. Jesus is not merely our Savior, but he is also our Lord. Jesus is not merely our Savior, 
but also our Lord. I am confident that we largely live as though Jesus is our Savior. I say this because we very clearly, in so many respects, enjoy the freedom that he came to acquire for us. But where we tend to fail is in recognizing that he's not only our Savior, but he's also our Lord. He's our King. And I get it. We live in a country where we elect our own leaders. We have no problem grumbling against them when they do wrong. Our television shows and newspapers poke fun or outright tear apart our leaders. We think, we think more about what we could get away with than what we're supposed to do. And if you don't believe me, think about every time you slow down to the speed limit when you see a cop on the road. Friends, Jesus is not like our earthly leaders. We had better remember what it is or learn what it is to live obediently to the king. And thanks be to God that Jesus is not some faulty earthly king. He's not some evil dictator. He is the good king who's laid his life down for his subjects. We owe him everything. Now, I know the world is full of temptations and the things that we're called to do, like preach the gospel and take a stand for Christ in this world, are hard things. But again, we must be obedient anyway, remembering that he's empowered us by his Holy Spirit so that we have the capacity to do the things that he has called us to do. Henry Blackaby once wrote, The servant does not tell the master what kind of assignment he needs. The servant waits on his master for the assignment. This is true in anything that Jesus has called us to do. And here in Scripture, he has already made many assignments very clear. That leads me to our second thing that we need to take notice of. We are called to be his witnesses. We have our marching orders. We are called to be his witnesses. Friends, this was not merely instruction for Jesus' earliest followers, but for us as well. How do we know that? Well, the bookends provided here are very clear. Jesus ascends to heaven, and one day he will return from heaven. In the meantime, the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, lives as his witnesses. We see this several other places as well. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, gives marching orders to make disciples of all nations. And it includes the promise that Jesus is with his people as they do this until the end of the age. Friends, the age ends when Jesus returns, and he has not yet done that. So we are still in that age, and we are still under orders to make disciples of all nations. And there are numerous other places in the New Testament epistles where the mission of God on the part of the people of God is emphasized. This is for us, just as it was for the first Christians. That means that we must be busy proclaiming the gospel. We must be busy testifying to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, rescuing people into the spiritual kingdom of God so that they are prepared for the physical kingdom of God when Jesus returns. Some of you might remember Alfredo Gutierrez, who was with our Alliance District for many years as a pastor, uh, working with the district office, and then uh, also as a district superintendent as well. He was fond of pointing this out to me every time, it seemed like almost every time we got together. He was fond of pointing out the Greek word behind witnesses in this text that we're looking at today. The Greek word is the Greek word martures, 
And, it, and does that sound familiar? Martures? What does it sound like? It's from this Greek word that we get our word martyr. Now, it's not exactly that Jesus called his people to be martyrs, but as the early church faithfully lived out its life as witnesses for Christ in a hostile world, many Christians willingly gave their lives in service to the king. This happened so often that the Greek word for witnesses, martyres, became associated with martyrdom. That's why we hear that word and we think martyr now and not witness because of how many early Christians gave their lives, bled for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spread of his gospel. Now, odds are that our faithfully proclaiming the gospel will not end in our martyrdom. But even if it did, who are we to back down from giving our lives in service to the king who died for us? I want to remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33. He says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Friends, we are called to acknowledge Jesus before others. We're called to testify to Jesus before others. Friends, may we obediently willingly, passionately witness for Jesus, proclaiming the gospel and allowing Christ to expand his kingdom in and through us. May we ever fix our eyes on Jesus, our soon coming king.